This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Education, part of the New Books Network. My name is Jonathan Haber, an educational researcher and consultant working at the intersection of pedagogy, technology, and policy in K-12 higher education and adult learning. And today we're joined by one of the nation's most well-known EdTech journalists, Jeffrey Young, senior editor, Ed Surge, and host of the Ed Surge podcast, and author of Beyond the MOOC Hype, a guide to higher education's high-tech disruption. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be talking again. For those of you unfamiliar with the acronym, MOOC stands for Massive Open Online Course. And when Jeff and I first met, MOOCs were the revolution that was going to rock higher education to its foundations. Jeff, you covered the MOOC phenomena for the Chronicle of Higher Education at the time. But before we get into the topic, can you give listeners some of your background? Yeah, we had the pleasure of meeting at the beginning of what was going to be this big groundswell of change in in education. Basically, I was at the Chronicle of Higher Education when this MOOC phenomena hit the world, and it was being covered not just in the education press, but on the cover of the Atlantic and, you know, New York Times columnists saying this was going to be the, you know, the next big thing um, and put colleges as we know it you know, in a new place and maybe out of business in some cases, ended up doing a a fellowship at Harvard, the Neiman Fellowship for Journalism for an academic year, where I got to dig in and and really look at this kind of transformation in Harvard and MIT, of course, were right in the mix of being part of the story of being sort of the first to really mount these very large scale courses for free or with low cost certificates attached to them. And there's just a lot of questions that people had at the time about like, what is this? So I was able to to dig into that and put together the book. Your book documented the rise of massive open learning, as you said, but can you describe what went on in the early part of this decade when the colleges seemed to be climbing all over each other to try to give their courses away for free? I know it's funny that we have to go back and kind of remind people now because it's becoming a little bit old news, but there was this interesting, I mean, it started off with a great story as so many things do, right? And you had a Stanford professor, Sebastian Thrun, opening up his class in computer science, which was popular at Stanford, but you know, he's teaching a couple hundred kids probably. And then just saying with a a teacher he taught with, like, what if we just open it up for the world and let anyone do the work as well as watch the lectures on video? And they had more than 100,000 people take them up on it. There was an eye-catching number. And a couple other Stanford professors kind of were at the same time having a similar idea. Andrew Ng and Daphne Kohler opened up their own computer science classes and saw this kind of attention as well. And so it was really, Sebastian Thrun gave this speech at a, at a conference where he said, after doing this, you know, I can't imagine 
teaching traditional classes at Stanford anymore when I can reach hundreds of thousands of people. And he started a company called Udacity with venture capital money to create a business around this. And Daphne Collar and um, Andrew Ng of of Stanford also started their own company called Coursera jointly together and worked with colleges. Both of them got a lot of venture funding, including very famous venture capitalists who had funded Google. And, and so this all of a sudden was a story that was catapulting education into realms that traditionally were not playing very much. Those were really heady days, although even at the time it felt like people were gripped with a kind of irrational exuberance, but there was something special about MOOCs at the time. Can you capture why people got so excited about them? Yeah, I think I mentioned the business angle. They downplayed that in the early days because people who started Coursera, I went to their first time they ever had a public event that was a picnic for their students. It was really soon after they sort of started as a company and I flew in to write about it for the Chronicle of Higher Ed. And it was really low key event. There were a few hundred people. These professors cooked burgers, chatting with the students that they had never met before. And there was this kind of like, wow, these people are taking our class, even though they're not enrolled students and they're kind of just doing it on their own time. There's no credit. There's there's just this hope that you could learn something. And one of them, Andrew, like stood on a picnic table and was kind of giving this speech about, you know, thank you people for coming and sort of touting this like, oh, free education is going to be free now. There's going to be these access to higher education that had been just kind of held and locked before. And so I think there really was this kind of philanthropic, feel good kind of story around, wow, could access really expand to something that a Stanford education, as you know, is like one of the most expensive services you could buy in this country. So what if there was a way to, to short circuit that kind of cost? And so I think that was one of the things that people were really struck by. It also just raised a lot of questions about could one professor teach 100,000 students and what really is education? Is that really possible? And there were all these questions going in about whether this would work. The dialogue around it seemed like the popular press, maybe the educational press also, but even more so the popular press was talking about unbundling education and this was a solution to cost disease. It seemed like some of the hype was a sideways ding on higher ed generally with a sort of out of control cost. But it was interesting when you talked to actual educators involved with it. I remember being on a panel with, with Peter Ball, who was at the time heading up Harvard's move projects and does response was, we're not doing this to destroy higher ed. We are higher ed. We are doing this for a bunch of reasons, but one of the main one is to improve campus education, trying to find new methodologies and new technologies and new things we could do at Harvard. I think there always was a bit of a disconnect between the academics involved with MOOC projects and how MOOCs were perceived in the outside world. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And your own story with this is so interesting about being a student and digging into what you can learn from this. But yeah, I, th I think you had these different perspectives with maybe different desires and excitement. For the students, it's clear that this was getting access to something. But for these upstart companies, there was a lot of interest in, could there be almost like a big portal of education that was something like a YouTube or, or some other big thing that had come along previously for various other slices of life. But for the colleges, you're right. For the colleges, they were not, especially Coursera's model was to actually work with existing colleges and Harvard and MIT actually jointly started something called edX with a bunch of other prominent colleges, which is still going today as a nonprofit 
version of a platform offering these massive open courses. And so, yeah, these colleges were not interested in destroying education, like you said, and they were interested in, well, if this is happening or if if this really is something that you can have huge gains in or rethink access, then they also wanted to be in the mix of making the campus of the future if part of it is online. I remember we were also we were both in the center of the storm when the fever broke and people started reacting to MOOCs with hostility almost as irrational as previous passion. Insight on reflection as to what happened? Yeah, a lot of people like to speak to a hype curve around technology and say it's inevitable that something gets a lot of excitement and then it can't deliver on the overhype and therefore it, it fades away. I mean, I, and I'm certainly that's part of it. But I do think there's something particular about education that, as you mentioned, the cost disease, this idea of how the cost of education, it seems like as other things reduce in cost, it's just has remained expensive. Part of Part of it is the human cost of just having highly trained people needed to be teaching and ratio of teacher to student being shown to work well being pretty fixed. And so I think there was a particular interest in, wow, maybe that thing could change in a way that people hadn't really even believed previous hype around this. I mean, I think it sort of set people's imagination going on something that maybe hadn't been as much engaged in by the Harvards of the world before. And the fact that these very elite universities were giving it a try seemed to give it this hope. And so I think that in education, it was it was uniquely hyped. The interesting thing is what was learned from it. MOOCs, as you know, still exist. And there are so many ways in which they, like you said, people have kind of walked away thinking, a lot of people I talked to at colleges have walked away thinking, well, this is over. It totally died. It didn't work. But as you know, MOOCs are still there and people are still taking them and teaching them. And I guess the, the question though is like, what did we learn about education from this experience? I think one of the things that is kind of who did end up succeeding and Despite that initial standing on the picnic table and hoping that the access would be to new people who couldn't get to education, it seems like this has worked best for people who are already the education haves and people who, you know, maybe already completed an undergrad degree and are are taking a a MOOC on something specialized that they know how to go through a college class because they've succeeded in it already. And it has not been as successful in experiments where they've tried to, say, replace the freshman year of college at Arizona State with an online MOOC series instead of going to the first year, which would be a lot cheaper. But that is for a population that has not already mastered the art of taking courses, which it turns out is something you have to get used to. And so I think the initial, you know, in some ways, the initial audience didn't seem to work. And it raises all these questions about at what level is human intervention absolutely needed? And what does it mean to even learn in college? Like, what is it you're really going for? It's certainly not as simple as just going through a list checklist of facts that you could read in a book. And I I actually think that right now in the pandemic and the massive shift to online across higher education because of health issues, I think those questions are now back in a very different way because instead of a, a hype around, oh, wow, we can put colleges out of business, it's a very different conversation about how well can we deliver education when there are these constraints that nobody wanted, but what can we do despite this? Yeah, and I want to zero in on the topic of COVID campus since you've been writing a lot about it at EdSurge. Before we do, we should note, you know, I was recently hanging around on Zoom with an old colleague at Harvard X who told me that MOOC enrollments have shot back up to 2013 levels with the COVID crisis. So might we be entering a MOOC renaissance? 
It seems like we are. Yeah. I mean, we're hearing about the MOOC companies. Coursera just announced some new numbers that are record for them. So yeah, I mean, is there going to be another MOOC moment? It does seem like there is. And I think the questions are, in the last few years, the places that make MOOCs like Coursera and edX, they have really pivoted to where they see their audience was, which are these kind of almost like a graduate schoolish kind of certificate programs, often around very job focused type areas in, in tech. So that is the infrastructure that's out there. And certainly with the economic crisis that we're seeing and people being laid off, having time and wanting to reskill, it seems like there is this rush to explore again to a new audience trying them out where they are, you know, kind of where these these micro certificates, these low cost options of getting a certificate for going through a, these self, self-guided, if you will, MOOC courses. I guess it's not surprising when you consider, you know, higher ed is often counter-cyclical and these are short term, you know, just a few weeks. And so right now there's so much uncertainty. You don't know how long People are going to be out of work or, you know, people hope not long. So it may not be enough time to enroll in a traditional higher ed program, but to log on to a course that, you know, you can start any time, it seems to be compelling for people. Two stats I remember when Harvard and MIT were doing annual research reports on MOOCs. You know, one was, as you noted, a majority of people taking courses already had at least an undergraduate degree. I think it was upwards of 80%. But then also, interestingly, I think 20 or 25% of people who self-reported their jobs said they were teachers, which opened up the interesting question, are MOOCs providing content or support for educators who are then taking it into the field and bringing it to students in more traditional classrooms? I thought of that when I heard how much MOOC usage had ramped up since the crisis had begun. And is there any data or even sort of anecdotal information that teachers are using these to either brush up on courses or as assignments or maybe kind of demos in class? That's an interesting angle. I frankly haven't looked at as far as like are the teachers kind of learning and brushing up. That's a that's a good story idea for us to to pursue. I did see um, on CB Insights they said that in the past ninety days, a million students who are not previously on Coursera have enrolled in courses there. So a million new students in ninety days. That's does show you that there's some spike. There definitely seems to be some action going on. And as you said, MOOCs haven't gone away in the last five or six years. There's actually colleges and universities are still producing them. There's some particularly interesting experimentation going on. I think, you know, Coursera and edX have moved to models where they're trying to get revenue or at least break even. So they felt a little bit less evangelical than they might have back when people were holding barbecues and talking about uh, making college free, but it seems like there's a role to play in terms of both providing content in times of crisis, but also a place to experiment in education. I mean, I think we have talked about it, but MOOCs were always platforms for doing experimentation and online learning that didn't really seem to be going on as much in the sort of conventional online learning colleges and universities or, or even high school programs. No, that's true. It gave a lot of attention and resources to teaching and online teaching in particular, which there's certainly already before the MOOC phenomena hit. Colleges had been over time ramping up their centers of teaching and learning and offering more resources in that area anyway. But this really gave a mandate and a goal to sort of try out 
various courses and see which audience worked and offer, you know, various things to either alumni or so it hasn't only been this business focused case. And one of the things I talked to a professor at University of Michigan, who's been very active since the beginning on making these free online courses, Charles Severance. And he was worried that because of the pandemic, some of that innovation will actually stop because frankly, you know, it's hard to get to, you know, that everything is now in kind of a remote mode of like just survival, so to speak, of of getting things done in, in universities. And so will there be the space for this kind of innovation and experimentation at the very moment where some of that might well be needed? And will colleges be able to take what they've learned in making these online courses? Can they now quickly turn those lessons into something actionable on campus when they suddenly are teaching so many people online? I guess that I'm looking for examples of that because that will, that hasn't been what they've been most recently trying to, to solve of, of undergraduates as much. And so will they be able to take lessons from MOOCs and quickly apply them to the on-campus teaching that's moved remote? Like you said, the current crisis is sort of changing everyone's priorities. Segwaying to the COVID crisis, which I know you've been covering Ed Surge all year, just generally, how colleges and universities been dealing with these COVID-related shutdowns? And at this point, now that semester's wound down, is there any consensus about how well or how poorly things went the second half of the spring semester? I think that's a great question. And we are trying to bring that to life through, especially our podcast. I've talked to a few students and professors along the way as they were suddenly forced into this, you know, being the first time they've taught a course online or taken a course online that they didn't choose to do. And I think it seems like it was not a great experience for a lot of people. I think a lot of people have a lot of feeling like people did their best, but we've seen a mass of petitions at colleges around the country and even some class action lawsuits where students are asking for part of their tuition back because they feel like their online instruction was not as good. And so, and they weren't getting the resources of course of campus. And so they are looking for some of their money back certainly a sign of how some students feel. At the same time, I did talk to a couple professors who felt like they had more. There was a professor I talked to at the University of Virginia, a history professor, Brian Bellow, and he said that actually he had some of the best conversations with individual students of his whole teaching career, and he's been doing it a long time because he was able to send out a note saying, if anybody wants to talk to me for a kind of phone office hour or Zoom office hour, like I'm available. And he had these long conversations with people individually that probably wouldn't have happened in person. Now, he admits that his first time teaching online was probably not as good as what it I mean, he, he kind of came down for, I think a couple of people I talked to, the professor said, they feel like the information was relayed. And if the students did their part and went through the video lectures or, you know, the assignments that were sent remotely, that they would learn the material just as well. Or But that that's not all of what's happening in an undergraduate classroom. And that what was lost was those discussions where you might inspire students to maybe join the discipline or dig into something in the current events that there's time for when you know you've already gotten through the material that you needed to get through. And so I think that gets back into what are the students there for after all? And what can be done online and what are some other things that maybe they can still be done online, but in a quick way they weren't able to pull off in this unusual pandemic semester. Yeah, no, it's the question of what is college. And there's still big questions hanging over us as what's going to happen in the fall. I know the University of California system announced they'll be continuing online next semester, but other schools have announced they'll be opening up, although what opening up means is 
not entirely clear at this point. What have you seen? Any thoughts about how things might shake out over the next academic year? It's going to be such an unusual and uncertain time. The spring was, this is just going to be even more. I think the story that we we have out today is about MIT crowdsourcing its plan for reopening. They haven't announced yet exactly what they're going to do, but they did this very big, large scale, you know, MIT, they all think they can solve every problem. And so they had a 26 or something different open forums on Zoom that people could turn up for. And hundreds of people, professors, students, staff participated in this kind of, basically these were very organized sessions where they had kind of official moderators and note takers and went through a script of trying to walk through various plans and scenarios and what people thought of them. And I talked to the person who ran that and, you know, he, he said, well, we hoped for some good ideas to come out of it, but really there's no magic bullet to this. To run a campus, anything in person with six feet distancing and masks, it's just not a campus experience any of us have ever thought through. Whereas online for all its faults, there are tools to do that. So the question is even basically the, the purpose of these webinars in a, in a way turned out to be, I think, to make everyone see how hard it is. And so they can get buy-in for what is not going to make anyone happy was the kind of sad thesis of the story. But I mean, Purdue University is famously installing what they say is a mile of worth of plexiglass in lecture halls and other spaces on campus to make barriers in to, to help protect the professors and the students as lectures happen. And that's kind of an image that's hard to imagine as well, but it will be very interesting. One of the experiences I've had recently, which I thought was interesting, was with a college that's sort of looking at its options. And many of the options all fall in some variation on time and numbers so that they can have a safe experience on campus. But uh, the assumption was online learning would be happening in some way, shape, or form. But I found very interesting that the faculty were most interested in learning from other faculty who had been successful with online learning, which which makes perfect sense. But there was also a sense I got that learning from other communities, either online course developers or MOOC developers, or even K-12, wasn't as much of interest. They were sort of looking to learn from their peers, but there was a bit of a challenge of thinking outside the box. Huh, that's really interesting. You know, I, I wonder, we have had a lot of traffic on some of our items where we have tr- tried to, you know, check in with various experts who know online learning, f- and they've all done Blockbuster well for us. Like I did an interview with Michael Wesh, who is a professor, but he's made these viral videos that have had like millions of views over the years. I guess I do feel like there are some signs of interest of thinking outside of the usual faculty member down the hall, especially when there's no hallway to walk down when you're locked out of it. But I do think you're touching on something that is part of the culture of higher ed, which is there is a lot of, there's a lot of silos. And so, you know, people do identify very closely with their academic community or their department community and their disciplines. I do see signs though that People, you can find a lot of examples of sharing and things that seem to be pretty popular of various organizations and colleges and publications like ours mobilizing to try to put out some sort of wisdom or best practices, if you will, from from people who've tried been doing this for years. 
Just wrapping up, uh, getting back to your book, we're well beyond the MOOC hype. Do you see any sense of beyond increased numbers during the crisis? Is there a new wave of experimentation or some role that MOOCs might play? Or perhaps is there another sort of technology innovation coming down the pike that might have the same kind of experience with that we saw with MOOCs a few years ago? You know, one of the points that I tried to make at the end of the book was that one of the things that the MOOCs did start was a conversation about the, this very conversation that you and I are still having of like, what really is education? And I think that there has been, because of the high cost of college and a lot of other factors, even before the pandemic, I do think people are very interested at new models and new experiments in a way that there's more openness to that than there was. I don't see kind of one killer app that I can point your listeners to, to say like, oh, that's the thing. But I do think there are a lot of different, you know, they're coding boot camps, which didn't exist when MOOCs started, which are often in person, but some of them are online now, where you can take a 12-week, 15-week short forum course and learn to code. But some of those that are in person are like massively low-tech, a couple faculty for a small number of people in a room together. And the idea is you quit your day job, you like just kind of stop everything else in your life and you work night and day for a short time and really learn in person some new skills so that you can change your career. Those are still pretty niche. And certainly there's questions about whether those will scale, but there's, I think, a couple different Examples, things like experiments around paying for colleges, the ISAs, which are instead of that, that you might be able to go to college without paying at first, and then you promise to give back, pay back the tuition over time once you have a job, only if you get a job. And so it can help convince people to make this huge money commitment of taking on higher education. I, I do think MOOCs were a big part of making those options happen in experiments. And so I think with the things going on with the pandemic and and the economic uncertainty, I think you're going to see just less tradition bound. That idea that it's got to be the way it was done in this, like in these beautiful woodlined classes and that, that that's the gold standard. I really think that's already kind of fading away. I don't know. What do you think? Actually, I'm curious. I would say one thing that came out of our conversations about MOOCs is that MOOCs could be effective alternative options for classes, but that college was not just about classes you take. I think it was worth exploring. I don't know if anyone's quantified it, but how much of your college tuition, if you want to take a financial model of it, is about classes you take versus the people you meet and the contacts you make or even this rite of passage we have in America that college represents a sort of safe space between late adolescence and young adulthood. And then there's sort of prestige and discrimination. So I think that question's still open when you pay a whole bunch for college, as, as I'm doing now and you will be soon. If it was itemized, you know, if that bill was itemized, what are you paying for? And would your classes be even like 50% of it? That's a great question. I mean, I think the pandemic is also raising that too. It's like, what is what do the students really miss? Is it the sitting in the lecture hall or is it the clubs or activities or sports or, I mean, it's all of it, right? And so it is, it's interesting that the itemized bill you're imagining, what is the right mix? And so I think, you know, maybe there'll be more questions about, you know, does it really take four years? Could it be three? Should there be a better, more frictionless path from two year to four year? Could that be improved? People have been talking about these things for a long time, but will there be movement in this area that doesn't say you can just replace everything with online, but that tries to think through what can be done where and how to make it affordable for more people? 
I think that's insightful. It seems like if change will occur, it's not going to be from, you know, what you called before a killer app. College is situated within the society. It's really, I think people refer to it as the multiversity. There is a lot that colleges do that has little or nothing to do with education. So in a way, this experience, the pandemic more than I would say the MOOC experience has opened people's eyes that we're talking about many different things when we talk about college. It's going to keep changing for sure. Well, Jeff, it's been a pleasure talking with you again. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. This has been a pleasure. That was Jeffrey Young, author of Beyond the MOOC Hype, A Guide to Higher Education's High-Tech Disruption, and senior editor, Ed Surge, and host of the Ed Surge podcast. Before calling it a podcast... That concept of an itemized college bill, which came up in our conversation, goes back to when Jeff and I were writing the first two books on massive open online courses and talking about what you're really paying for when you hand over a bunch of big checks to an institution of higher education. In an attempt to break down a tuition bill based on real data, I compared what it costs to take eight full semester courses at Harvard Extension School, which is open to the public, and where courses are often taught by professors who also teach students at Harvard College, with what it costs to attend Harvard for a year as an undergraduate. This year, for example, Harvard Extension is charging $1,800 per course, which means a fully loaded eight-course academic year at the Extension School comes to $14,400. In comparison, tuition fees for Harvard undergraduates adds up to $51,925, not including room and board, which raises the question of what are you buying for that extra $37,525? Is it companionship? A network? A safe space to grow up? the ability to put Harvard in your resume and LinkedIn profile? If it is, the numbers seem to indicate that those things taken together are worth more than two and a half times what you pay to take many of the same courses from many of the same professors. I'm not sure what that means, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't mean nothing. Something to think about between now and when you join us next time here at New Books in Education, part of the New Books Network.